Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorja, and welcome to another episode of Rice for Breakfast, a podcast about Asian Americans in pop culture. First, in Asian American news this week, actress-rapper Aquafina, a breakout star from Crazy Rich Asians, obviously, became the second Asian American woman ever to host SNL 18 years after her idol Lucy Liu was the first to do so back in 2000. Um, during Aquafina's opening monologue, she took a second to tell a story about waiting and watching Lucy Liu on SNL uh, and thanking her for being such an inspiration to her. Amy B. Wang of the Washington Post wrote an interesting article uh, comparing the monologues of Aquafina and Lucy Liu to show how different the pieces were. Um, Lucy Liu's was a video diary basically uh, showing about how welcoming the SNL cast was to her but in the guise of Asian stereotypes, like, for example, Lucy Liu says she has such a great time being a tourist in the office, and then it cuts to her with uh, cameras and a fanny pack, and then she talks about how Jimmy Fallon was so nice to uh, asking her to help out with his costume for a weekend update, and then the reveals that she's actually working at a dry cleaner. Um, so you kind of get the gist of it. It's funny that even then, SNL and Lucy Liu knew that that monologue would be a bit controversial because she actually ends the monologue by saying, despite how it looked, they really made me feel at home, so save the calls, people, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. The article is a quick read and pretty interesting. It goes on to talk about the three other Asian or Asian American hosts that SNL's ever had before and some of the racial diversity issues that SNL has uh, tried to address in recent years. This week's guest is chef and restaurateur Dale Talday. Some of you may know Dale from his two seasons on the show Top Chef uh, or from one of his 10 restaurants, including the appropriately named Talday. We talk about growing up in Chicago, the importance of preparing rice uh, properly as a kid, the grueling life of a young chef, the politics and appropriation of Asian food, microaggression towards Filipino Americans, his experience on Top Chef, and more. Uh, fair warning, this interview does have a bit of profanity in it. Not too much, it's a bit um, every now and then. So just fair warning for those with sensitive ears listening. I think it's another great episode, and I hope you all enjoy listening to it. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @ricebreakfast. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash riceforbreakfastpod. And you can go to riceforbreakfast.com for more ways to listen. So thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, eat your rice for breakfast. Starting from the beginning, uh, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? So I know you're Filipino-American from Chicago, correct? Filipino-American um, from Chicago, born and raised in Chicago until about 05, and then went to New York and been in New York since then. And I'm Filipino American myself. Uh, you know, growing up, I had Filipino food, basically three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, was it similar for you growing up? Yeah, you know, I had the same experience. You know, um, um, I, I like to I tell people that my food is um, a lot of my food is uh, it's just been my walk of life, and you know how I've experienced food as an Asian American, as a Chicagoan, as a um, Queensboro native, as a Lower East Side, New Yorker, and then as a Brooklyner, and now as someone who lives in Fort Lee, New Jersey, with my wife, um, you know the my my walk and my talk and um, food experiences all come from like my everyday. And um, I tell people that my everyday was you know in my my home in Chicago, in you know Northwest Chicago, Niles, Illinois, was um, 
could be any household in Manila or in Negros where my parent, my dad's from or Iloilo where my mom's from um, in the Philippines. But the minute I walked outside the door, it was, um, you're in mid-America, yeah. you know, you're in, um, you know, when we went to school, it was, you know, when I, I, my mom's a nurse, like many of our yeah. <laughs> um, mothers who came here are nurses. Um, so breakfast and she worked the overnight. So breakfast was kind of like whatever dinner was the night before or fend for yourself. And lunch was square pizzas and tater tots or, you know, Salisbury steak and mashed potatoes. Um, but dinner at home was, you know, very traditional, you know, adobo, sinagang, denuguan, um, you know, bangos, um, gulai, and then rice. So, you know, it, I have that, that POV is definitely, um, you know, that's where I think my food came from. It's Filipino American or Asian American because, you know, very Filipino at home. And then when you, you know, when you step outside, that's what I ate at the school. Uh, I remember reading, I was reading an article or an interview you did, you talked about you know, the meals that changed you. And someone that stuck out to me was uh, you specifically brought up rice and how if you messed up rice at dinner, uh, that, that was bad news. Can you tell me a little about that? I try explaining to some people like how important and different <laughs> yeah, rice you is. Know, <laughs> so, you know, my, you know, a lot of, um, it was one of the, rice was one of the first things I learned how to make. You know, it's your chore to make rice, your job to make rice, wash the rice three times, use your you know, use a little crease halfway up in your thumb that measures the rice or use the palm and your middle knuckle is where the right, the water level should be. Um, but, you know, my mom, my both my parents worked. My mom was an RN, worked at the graveyard. My dad was uh, a tradesman. He was a boilermaker and a welder. So he worked from like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., 12-hour shifts every day, um, you know, six days a week, sometimes seven. Um you know, really hardworking, um, you know, Filipino American immigrants. And um, to pitch in, you were, you had to clean, you had to help cook, you had to do the dishes, you had to water the, you know, vegetable garden when it was summertime. So we all had a part. And, um, you know, your dad works hard. And, you know, um, I think Chris Rock does the, you know, what what does dad get home? He gets the biggest piece of chicken. <laughs> My dad always got a warm pot of rice, freshly made rice. That's awesome. Um, and if you forgot to hit cook and it was just on warm and the rice was not right, guess what, man? Someone's catching it. Yeah. And by the time someone's catching it, my mom was like out the door going to work and my dad was just getting home. And I was like, nope, I didn't make the rice. And, you know, <laughs> if my sister and my brother messed it up, it was like, you know, everything else was laid out perfect for my dad to come home and just eat. Yep. But that rice. So super important. Um, I, I ghosted. I ghosted if the rice was messed up. <laughs> Did you find like growing up uh, when you had non-Filipino or non-Asian friends who came over for, for food, for dinner, um, was that kind of like a learning experience for you? Did you have friends who kind of were, were a little uncomfortable and they learned to end up liking you, the food? No, you or... know, it was the opposite. My, most of my friends were Filipino because I grew up, um, you know, pretty involved in church and then, um, you know, it was a Filipino church, but we played ball like every Filipino kid plays basketball and is in, you know, we were in a Filipino basketball league. So most of us were Filipino. So we all knew what was up. Come some, you know, you go to your friend's house, take off your shoes, go to your friend's house or, you know, her mom's, their mom's going to ask, did you eat yet? And there's going to be, <laughs> you know, some piece of fried pork product chilling on the table with like two fried eggs and a warm pot of rice. So if you are hungry, there it is. Right. Whether it's pork chops, longanisa, tofino, something. 
um, one of my really good friends when I was in grade school, mm-hmm. um, talking like elementary school, was Indian. And I went to his parents' house, and they had were eating dinner. And that's the first time I felt uncomfortable. Okay. Where I couldn't identify what was on the table. And I was like, no, nah, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm good, even though I probably would have eaten. Sure. And looking back at it, looking back at it, I was, I held those same food prejudices that you, we all talk about now, like mm-hmm. stinky food and all that. I looked at, you know, I know now I, I can envision the dish and I knew it was, uh, it was um, sag paneer. Uh-huh. Like I knew it, like, you know, I know, I look at that, there's basmati rice and sag paneer on the yeah. table and there were samosas. And for some reason I was like, this food looks very foreign to me and I don't want to eat it. Going forward a little bit, like when you uh, or started like learning how to cook and stuff like that, did you kind of remember what it was like to sort of not recognize the food? Is that a, did that end up like affecting you uh, moving forward yeah. through your life? Yeah, a lot, a lot, you know, because now it's like now if someone makes you play the food, even it's like, yo, someone made someone made you play the food, but eat it, you know, and it's like someone, whether you're hungry or not, it's like, you know, how many times do I eat something at work and I'm not hungry, but it's my job to eat it. And now it's like, perfect example, Ramadan's happening right now, right? Yep. So when all my, all the support staff and some of the guys, you know, some of the people who work the floor, whether they're bus boys or food runners or whatever, when they have to go break fast, it's like four or five of them and they do it um, in, in groups because, mm-hmm. you know, you typically you break fast with your family, right? So they don't have the opportunity now because they're all working. So, you know, one family member, one Within the group, one person's wife makes dinner for everybody, and they they all pitch in. So it's like um, my head food runner is a cure. Like his his wife makes banging lamb biryani, biryani uh-huh. and banging samosas. Um, and in the beginning, like you know, I'd be on the line, and when we first opened the restaurant, like you know, can you imagine these guys haven't eaten for eaten or drinking for thirteen hours? But the first thing they do is offer the chef or the owners of the restaurant a plate of food right you know how dare you not eat that how dare you not eat that they they've gone 13 hours the whole day doing just as hard of work as everybody else and they're not even eating yet so it's like yo you take a bite it's out of respect even if you're not hungry yeah so that really shapes that's shaped a lot of it um you know, and you take those, you take those moments in life and you, and you don't dwell on them, but you say, Hey, you know what? That was like a misstep. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I should have been like, yo, I'm ready to eat. I'm down. Okay. So moving back to uh, your childhood a little bit, when did your parents move over here from the Philippines? Roughly. I came, you know? My parents came here in the early seventies. Okay. Early seventies, you know, right when, right. You know, it's, it's, it's funny to talk about it now because. Um, you know, immigration status now and, sure. and but you know when and people want to forget this, but when the U.S. needed healthcare workers and were giving visa, work visas to people who had, you know, people who were registered nurses and registered healthcare practitioners, that's when my parents came here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just funny now that it's like there's this lockup on immigration now, and it's like, yeah, but you know what? When when the U.S. needed people. Because they couldn't get, you know, the native sons and daughters weren't fulfilling the job. They they went outside of the, they went outside of the borders and welcomed people, welcomed healthcare practitioners with well with open arms. 
And did, the, did your family go straight to uh, Chicago or did they kind of move around and they ended up there? No, my mom was here first. She was in New Jersey okay. and um, spent two years in New Jersey. And then um, I think other sister, her sister, other family were like uh, laying down in Chicago and then she just followed suit. Um, then my dad came over afterwards. Okay, cool. Uh, did you ever go to the Philippines when you were younger? Uh, yeah, yeah. When, when my grandfather had a stroke, we went back, and I probably was like 10. Um, and then I went back um, about six or seven years ago. And then last year, my wife and I went to Cebu um, and spent like a week, a uh, week and a half in, in the Philippines. Do you have specific memories from when you were a kid, when you were 10 years old, going there? Like, do you... Um... You know, oh did, my god! Did you enjoy it was, it? I, I mean, it's like, such a bizarre situation, right? Yeah. For a young kid. Yeah. I'm. Um, oh my god! When I went to the Philippines the first time, it was like, like this unbelievably horrific airplane ride. Like <laughs> yeah. how long? Just like, how you long? know, you're in. You went from you know Chicago to Seoul or Hong Kong, and then Hong Kong to the Philippines, and when you land, it's like 99 degrees and it's pouring rain. Right. And you're in this airport and, you know, like security guards have like fully automatic weapons and shotguns with shell, you know, shell, you know, wrapped around the shoulders. Even, even like, the malls, the, the cops have the same security there, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Also. So can you imagine a little kid, like you don't even know. It's just like, where are we? And then, you know, like we went to my grandmother's house that like, yo, we pumped the well for water. Mm -hmm. And she had a nice house, but it was like. I remember specifically we got there super late and we were super tired and we slept. And when I woke up, I heard like chickens, roost, like, <laughs> ro like roosters. Yeah. And I went outside and that's part of the family trade is raising fighting. Uh, yeah. Cocks. Yeah. The cock fights. Yeah. That's what we do. We have a rose garden and mm -hmm. fighting cocks. And I was like, Oh my God, this is like insane. And then, it just so happened on our like whatever three week trip there, like one of the water buffalo that's on the rice paddy got hit by lightning <laughs> and they brought it back and we're like butchering it. And I was just like, can you imagine like a 10 year old yeah. kid who was getting, you know, steaks out of a package and now it's like, oh, what do you guys want for dinner? Oh, you know, you guys want chicken adobo? I'm like, oh yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> one of the, you know, your grandmother tells, you know, one of the cooks that's there taking care of her to go grab a chicken and kills it in front of you. And you're like, oh my God, dude. <laughs> Uh, did you not go in between because you had a really bad experience the first time you went? I mean, I'm sure you were super busy with no, work and all sort of stuff. Just, so there just wasn't, you know. I mean, as a cook, what do you carve out time, you know, to right. like, you know, the salary I was making? I mean, you know, like I'm making eight dollars an hour when I first started cooking in '99. Like legit, dude. That's what I was making. I made eight. I made eight bucks. Sixty, seventy hour work weeks. Twenty or thirty of those hours were unpaid. Uh, at portion, you know, portion of my early career, I was working two jobs, getting up at six in the morning, getting to work at like seven thirty, working lunch from, you know, eleven till three, getting crushed like in a popular restaurant in mid, in, you know, in downtown Chicago, and then walking three blocks to my other restaurant where I work there five days a week also, and working from four o'clock till close till midnight, and then doing it all on repeat. I had one day off and two half days off. So I was like, listen, man, you know, like you choose your career or you choose like, you know, it's like, yeah. and that's what I did. I chose my career. Yeah. Like you chose, you, you know, you don't travel. I didn't travel at all in between that. I think mm -hmm. I went to like 
two cities, um, you know, in the beginning of my career in six years. Like Seeing that your parents worked long hours and they were always uh, working to provide for your family growing up, do you, did that help you kind of push through the, uh, you know, insane hours you had to do when you were starting your career up? Did, did you kind of look back at that Easily. at all? Yeah. Yep. No. You see how hard your parents work to get you where you're, you know, to get you to where you need to be. And it's like, it's not hard for you to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, dude, like I used to see my dad come home and like just covered in soot yeah, and dirt, you know, and he worked in these industrial boilers that were bigger than like, that were like six story buildings. And it's a, it's just a boiler. It's like the Kellogg's factory in mm-hmm. Indiana. Mm-hmm. And when the boy, you know, when you go to fix the boiler, you're fixing huge pieces of machinery. Um, like I would straight up see my dad and feel so hungry. He didn't shower before he ate. We would just put newspaper down on uh, newspaper down on, on a chair and he would eat. And then he would get off this newspaper and it's like jet black. Did that kind of show you the power of food too? Like where he ate before he even showered and, you know, he was still dirty from work. You kind of understood like, this is what food means to people, right? Or, you know, there was, you know, parts of my dad and I, I really, you know, I, a lot of my, a lot of times I talk about how, how much my mom shaped my cooking career because she's mm-hmm. a fantastic cook, yep. you know, and she provided for family and she cooked for family. And, you know, she raised kids, she had kids, and I went to work. But my dad taught me that other edge of, like, of food. When people say eat where construction workers eat because mm-hmm. the food's good, yep. that's the side I saw from my dad. Okay. He'd be like, oh, you want to go eat, you want to go get tacos? I'm like, yeah, of course. How would I say no to that? And then yeah. he would just take you to this hole-in-the-wall place that's like, it's a grocery store, a Mexican grocery store, but you go to the back and take a right, and there's, like, <laughs> a 18 feed taqueria that's only mexicans eating there yeah and so you're just like, good whoa dude it was legit <laughs> you kn- and i was like my dad only knows about this place because he worked with his co-workers were mexican and they knew about this place you know right. that's what i learned from my dad uh so what at what point did you realize like i think i want to keep doing this for a career or did you- um cooking um yeah you know that time when I, I, I had I, I had a real bad I made real poor financial decisions when I was a kid mm-hmm. when I was younger in my you know early twenties mm-hmm. and I had to get I had to get two jobs okay. to make ends meet and you know a lot you know when you were really working a hundred hours a week um, and you do it for like a year and a half two years I did it for about a year and a half and you see summer go into winter and winter turn into summer. And you don't even like, you don't even realize it's happening. Yeah. Like you just like, all of a sudden you blink and then it's Christmas and then you blink and it's like 95 degree days. Um, that's when I was like, okay, I can do this. I think I know what it takes to be a management because those guys are working crazy hours like that too. So, um, that's when, that's when I kind of like, was like, all right, I know how hard, you know, I need, I needed to like stop partying. And mm-hmm. I was like, you know, when I first started cooking, I was like, in my, I turned 21 when I was in the kitchen. Yep. Um, I had to get all that party, like, you know, stop getting stoned and going to work. Yeah. I had to get all that on my system. And then when I started taking my career seriously, is when I could, I, I was like, you know, I can do this. Do you see a, a lot of other young chefs who uh, reach out to you or you end up working with? Do you kind of see them have the same trend? Uh, do you see other people where, you know, they kind of 
uh, goofed around a little bit when they're younger and then they kind of hit them that they really want to take it seriously or yeah I mean, you know i think everyone goes through that phase mm-hmm. but i don't know i mean i think you know everyone loves you know like the guys i went to so listen when i went to culinary school it was like emerald lagasse yeah yeah you know yeah, the, the naked chef it was emerald lagasse and, and bam and it was you know um but it wasn't top chef or master chef or any of these other shows like i didn't I went to culinary school because I wanted to have a restaurant and I loved cooking. It wasn't so much to be like super famous and get on a, you know, get on right. a cooking competition and do that. It happened, but I did. That's not why I went. I mean, I'm 40, I'm pushing 40 right now. I'm 39. I'm turning 40. Mm-hmm. I've been cooking since 98, 98. I see. So I talked to my peers and like, yo, I graduated culinary school in 04 or 05. Or, I'm like, yo, I was knee deep in shit. then. <laughs> Yeah. Like you, you know, like I didn't go to culinary school because I thought it was like trendy. I wanted to be famous. I just yeah. wanted. I just. I couldn't sit behind a desk. I yeah. knew that. So. And when did when did you realize that? At what age did you know you like didn't want to sit behind a desk? You needed to be early, man. Like my first job was a telemarketer, and I was like, "Oh my god, is this really what corporate jobs are like? Like sitting at a cubicle with a script?" And I was like, "There's no a- way I could do this." Yeah. I'm drawing, I'm going crazy. I'm watching time. And I'm like, there's just no way. And I know that they being a telemarketer is obviously like not compared to like other people's jobs, like mm-hmm. finance, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. but I was just, there's no way I'm sitting down. Like I'm just too, there's too much going on. And like, I just I can't, I can't sit down and, and work. Yep. I need to be like out and about. I need to be touching things, creating things like, um, seeing vision. I just had to see, I had to be in the action. You know, it's like you, at some point you become like this action junkie. When you started to take it seriously again, like what was your first move out of doing that? Uh, after you said you kind of, you know, did those one and a half years of hundred hour weeks. So what was your first move when you started, uh, you know, um, I went into management. I decided like, yeah, I can do this. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be, I'm going to go try and become a sous chef somewhere. And I bounced around sous chef gigs, fell into a job in Chicago at a place called opera with, mm-hmm. um, a, 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 the late Paul Wilderness who passed away a while ago, but, um, and like found a voice there because his philosophy on like these dining experiences was like, you should have a lot of specials and like special things for people. So come up with the muse bouche was like a little bite, mm-hmm. uh, come up with an amuse bouche, come up with a soup of the day, an app of the day and an entree of the day. And I was like, that's a lot. And, but you know, it pushes you to like, cook yeah and cook what you know cook so um and did you immediately start trying to bring um you know filipino or asian influence into your first uh management job or did that kind of come when you started when you opened tall day and stuff that came when i started opening tall day okay um that was more of a putting yourself on a plate okay sure um and I still don't do a lot of Filipino food, to be honest with mm-hmm. you. Yeah, yeah, I took a lot um, of menus. It's pretty, pretty wide range there. Yeah, and I don't do a lot of Filipino food. I love it. Um, I don't know. To me, I think Filipino food has been like this, right? Like, listen, everybody has, hey, my friend's Filipino. Hey, my, <laughs> I dated a Filipino girl. Hey, my, my nanny was Filipino. Yeah. You know what? Filipino food's mine. So go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need you. I don't need you to fucking eat it. I don't need you to tell me that you like this blood chocolate meat shit. I, I don't need you to do that. 
You know? Yeah. I don't need you to tell me that you like the fucking Jabberwockies. Or, <laughs> or do it. Or like the Jabberwockies. I don't fucking care. That ain't my problem. You know, that's not... I don't care. We can have something that's ours. Uh-huh. So you're not anxiously awaiting uh, Filipino food to become the next trendy thing in the States? Or is that... No, I don't. I don't care. I don't care if people like it or not. I'm just going to do it and I'm going to eat it. And I don't give a fuck if you like it or not. Or if you want to... <laughs> if you... It's the next best thing or not. Or the new the new hot cuisine. Because right. you know what... Hot, you know what hot cuisines are? Trends. Yeah. And trends die. Yep. We've been here. We took care of your children. We took care of you in hospitals. None of you had the, had the ability or the want to learn healthcare. We did these things. Filipinos have been here. So I'm not like the next trend. And I don't care if you like the food or not. I don't care if you're searching it out. What I'm going to do is, I'm going to put Filipino food on my menu or I'm not. But if I put it on the menu, you're going to hopefully you eat it and enjoy it. Yeah. But I'm not sitting here telling you to eat it because you know what? I can have this. This can still belong to me. This can still can belong to all of us. Right. Yeah. You know, the next, the next person that tells me that their friend is, I had a Filipino friend. We're like, yeah, go fuck yourself. You don't need to say that. (laughs) Yeah. it, It is like a little microaggression thing that people don't understand. Uh, did you watch Get Out last year? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the scene where um, Daniel Kaluuya is meeting um, Allison, what's her name? Allison Williams' family, right? Williams. And, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. They're all, and they're all saying, oh, you're like, uh, you know, I love Tiger Woods and stuff like that. It, it is kind of funny. I voted for Obama. Right, right. I voted for Obama. Yeah. It's funny. The, the Filipino version of that is, oh, I know, you know, my cousin's Phil, or, you know, my, my in-law's Filipino or something like that. And that's like... Awesome story. Yeah. You know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Great story. And? Yeah. What are your thoughts? It kind of seems like I know uh, on kind of how food trend, um, you know, social media, food is kind of leading social media in a lot of ways right now, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a necessary evil. I mean, should I do it? I mean, look at my, look at my feed. My yeah. feed's all, um, yeah. um, you know, it's like, it's like this, it's like this, like, it's this brag, right? Yeah. It's this brag of like, well, look what I'm eating. It's probably better than your dinner. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the best thing, mm-hmm. um, but I know it's a necessary evil. Sure. Um, Do you see it like it's kind of pushing food along the way food TV shows when, uh, like you were saying with, um, you know, Yang can cook and stuff. Do you think it's going to, it'll have the same effect on people or do you think it's going to kind of push food culture forward in the same way? Or do you think it's just going to be a, Lead to a different I think I, and I also think that I think there is some good things because you get to see like you you see pictures of things that you would never be able to see and be like what is that right um, but when just when food becomes this like this grotesque like how many how many things can I jam into my Bloody Mary <laughs> yeah or how many things can I throw on top of a Sunday? right I don't know man you know it's like you know what happened to like properly cooking food Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like what happened? Look at Filipino food. Like Filipino food is the furthest from from being Instagram. Instagrammable. But it's yeah. delicious. Yeah. It's not. It's like it's the not furthest, all you know. Pork stuffed you know, you in a, oil and, it, yeah, and random things. Yeah. Or you or... take a picture of the whole pig and that kind of that's it. But it's like, I don't know. It's beautiful. There's something beauty. You know, I think, you know, what I love about David Chang is he's kind of come full circle and it really is this ugly, delicious. Mm-hmm. 
food genre that that exists and it's like food doesn't need to be you don't i don't need tweezers to be putting like six million flowers on something and then <laughs> you know it's cold by the time i get it right so you're more um, uh, ugly delicious versus chef's table right now in terms of listen i love the way chef table is shot I, it, it oh looks beautiful God, with the music yeah totally but my food i feel like listen i don't sit here and think about how do i make this pretty right i want it to be attractive and look you know, like, look like you want to eat it, mm-hmm. but I'm not sitting here sacrificing temperature of food or all this other stuff for something to, you know, yeah. for the dish. I just want it to be what it is. Let yeah. it be. So while we're on TV, uh, obviously you, you competed in Top Chef in what, 2008, I think, right? 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you came mm-hmm. back and did Top Chef All-Star. So, you know, obviously this is a pretty big question, but what was that? Uh, experience like um, more more so when you were decided to come back uh, two years later. Yeah, you know, I think 2008, the first time I got on there, I was like, didn't know what, and I I didn't know what this was all about. And I was a little naive to the whole TV thing, and more importantly, I didn't, I wasn't in a good headspace personally. Excuse me, in my personal life, and 2010, and then after seeing yourself on TV and seeing like, you know, you see how disappointed your parents are in you, like. Do you really act like that? You're like, hey, things need to change about yourself. And I did some work, went to therapy, mm-hmm. you know, t- just did some work, personal work on myself. Um, where that would have never happened had I not seen that side of me. Well, had I not been able to see what, how people perceive me. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. I think what I think that what TV does is it allows you, especially reality TV, if you, if you do, if it is reality, right? If it's truly a show that's not like feeding you or leading you into things. It's just like, Hey, yo, what happened? Right. Um, then you get to really get an honest picture of who you are. And I didn't like that honest picture of who I was. And I could do two things like continue to, you know, I, there's a bunch of things I could have done, but continue to be the person I was and disappoint everybody around me and probably, you know, never be really happy or do work. And I did some work and, in 2010 and when i came back i think people really saw like kind of the person i am and grew into and um hopefully the person i am you know i you just get better you know you fall down but you get back up and try and be a better person and i don't know top chef it taught me a lot it taught you like it's a thing i've been i've done a lot of reality tv i've been on a lot of shows yeah you're on like chopped top and... chef was the realest yo okay the realest as far as like you're going up against the creme de la creme of mm-hmm. people cooking out in the real world. Like these dudes own mis- there's crazy Michelin stars. You know, some of these guys have worked for the masters. See, some of these people are already amazing, like baller ass chefs in the cities that they're in. Yep. And now you got to cook against them <laughs> for five and a half weeks yeah. and try and knock them off the pedestal. And you know, a lot of times you're hoping that they fall. And you, that their misstep is greater than yours, um, you know? Yep. And it teaches you, like, hey, I can do anything, you know? People mm-hmm. are like, oh, you know, my chefs are like, chef, there was a pop-up party, and in two days, they, you know, they, they want to do a 300-person party. It's just so hard. It's like, hey, bro, I had to do a wedding, a catered <laughs> wedding in 24 hours for 300 people. <laughs> so don't tell me in three days this is going to be tough. Yeah. And I had to prep it by myself. You got a whole staff of people. <laughs> so don't tell me it's hard. Don't tell me what hard is. Rewind the tape, homie. Check it out. 
So that's funny. So that, it out. that really, the the events were really that. Uh, you were really flying on your own for things like that. That's that's that's, that's yeah, good when to they hear. Tell you, you got twenty four hours to do it. In twenty four hours, somebody is getting married, and there's three hundred people waiting for this wedding reception. That's real talk happening. So you know what I mean? Like, there's no like, oh, you guys aren't ready yet. I oh, will tack on another four hours. <laughs> right, it like that. right right yeah you saw this clock and when the 24th you know at the end of the 24 hours it started yeah a mel or i water yeah uh do people still recognize you from from that or when they go to your Yo, man i just went out to dinner with my family right now just went out to dinner with my family right now dude comes back and can't goes like hey we took care of some things i'm like oh that's cool man i mean you know you didn't have to the line was just a little old you got me a new one i mean you didn't need it and then and then one of the dudes comes up and is like, hey, man, big fan. Da, da, da. I was like, oh, <laughs> thanks, man. You appreciate it, dude. You know, you didn't need to do all that, but it's much appreciated. So, yeah, you get, you, you know, yeah. you get it. You get it. And social media, just you know, Instagram and social media kind of help all that stuff, you know. Um, someone just posted this weekend, you know, like on my mission to eat at all my favorite Top Chef people. And finally made it to Brooklyn and Dale's restaurant in Park Slope. And I was like, man, dude, thank you. That's cool. That means a lot. Still means a lot. It yeah. won't ever not mean a lot. Uh, so you just talked about your restaurant in Park Slope. Is that so? Uh, you opened that first one in 2012, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then since then, you've opened. I mean, what ten? I, t- I tried counting on your website. <laughs> ten or eleven? Yeah. Right? We've opened like ten. We've also closed like four. <laughs> okay. But, you know, it's, so it's kind of yeah. That's that's just a game. That's the yeah. restaurant game. Yeah, right yeah. Now. You know, it's like you know, you swing for the fences, and sometimes you strike out or you hit a home run. So. Um, but currently, right now, we have Taldi, Brooklyn, Taldi, Jersey City, um, Missoni. Um, we have a rooftop in Missoni called The Heights. We have Rice and Gold. That has a rooftop called The Crown. That has a nightclub that's getting rebranded sometime in the fall, September-ish. Um, and that's what we have right now. And, uh, you know, we have some projects in the works, but um, that's what we have right now. It's kind of keeping us really busy. You know, two rooftops in the summertime in New York. Right. Um, a nightclub. It's just it's, uh, it's quite a bit. Do you still have time to so, to figure out uh, new creative uh, recipes or things you want to experiment with in yeah. kitchens, or is it mostly yeah. business side now? No, it's you know you still do. I still carve time out for that, you know. Uh, and it's important when, when you know, like my executive chef in Tulsa, Brooklyn, um, we were getting a new one, and uh, you know, it's it's just talking food philosophies with them and. Um, trying to mold some of these people into like what, you know, buying into like your program. And um, so, you know, that is the easy part, right? Food is the easy part. It's the fun and easy part. You know, like it, I'll tell you during this winter, we, I put our Escaldo on two menus. Oh, nice. And, um, and it, it was, people were like, I don't know what this is. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I like, what's not to know, dude. It's rice. It's the <laughs> it's rice, rice porridge. Chicken. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> but you know it's. Like, but you know what? It's your job to convey the story, right? My job, because these people didn't grow up eating it. I grew up eating it, so I have to tell people. It's tell people the story. Why is this good? I have very fond memories of uh, eating Ariscaldo whenever I was sick. Uh, that that was my sick yeah. food. Yeah. Of course, you know, and that's how you. And that's hey, guys, this is a, a hug in a bowl. <laughs> yeah, that's, good. that's, a, a, that's a great way to put it. From yeah. my mom. It's a big hug from my mom to anyone who's eating this because this is what my mom made me when I was sick. And do you use her same so guys, bread? It's like, Sorry, go ahead. 
Exact same recipe. Same recipe. Okay. Yeah. Exact. Exact. Awesome. You know? Yeah. It's super garlic and ginger forward. Mm-hmm. Super. And that's how my mom's is. You know, it's like you got to get, you know, and you wonder why. It's because we ate it when we were sick. We had a cold. We ate this. You know, and if you have a cold, you typically can't taste anything. So pump it full <laughs> as much ginger and garlic as much as stuff can. as possible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's great. The way people chefs think about food and how their food is perceived and how the restaurant is perceived uh, is so different, right, from from person to person. And I find that uh, I, I really love that. Even you know, culturally, if it's both Asian food or or both uh, you know French food, everyone just sees it so differently because food is so inspired, um, you know, by your upbringing and and you know everything that has led you to becoming a chef and a restaurateur. So I, I love hearing all the different perspectives around that. It's, it's great. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful. That's what I mean. So it makes food fun. It's what turns you on about food. What turns you on? You know? <laughs> yeah. What do you love about it? What yeah. makes you passionate about it, right? Yeah. And that's what's like, you know, that's what the missile, it's like, uh, you know, food is like, to, to some degree, it's like, it's it's like music, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, music. And that's how I see it. Like, I feel like the best musicians are grounded in proper technique. Yep. Right? Like they, they learn, they learn proper technique. And then they then they can go all Miles Davis and 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 go, um, you know, they can go make their own do their own thing. Right. Um, but they have to. They're both essentially ground, you know, grounded in a real proper technique in the beginning, and then they can go and freestyle. So, last question here: What is the thing you took back most, um, whether it be cooking or memories from your last visit to the Philippines? You know, I take for granted. I think what I took the most back is that how tough how much I take for granted what it is I do mm-hmm. um you know when I was a guest chef at this I was at a I was at a resort and I was a guest chef there for a week you know you had to cook uh, we had to make meals we were you know I had my dishes and then you know we would prep my dishes and I would show people how to prep them and then um they would execute them for for us mm-hmm. right you said this was in Cebu and, um, right? this in Cebu and um you go in these kitchens and it's like 120 degrees in these kitchens. Yeah. And you see these guys there for like 12 hour shifts and you know, they're not getting paid anything and they're tasting their food. They're doing the best job that they can with very little, you know, with some of like poor resources, you know, like, you know, like any yeah. kitchens we have here, we have like these all clad pans and beautiful coon spoons and these fancy ass tweezers and shit. <laughs> they go in these kitchens and these guys are just making it happen with, you know, saute pans that are just beat up. And like these kids are smiling the whole way through. Mm-hmm. They are just, there's, you know, and you ask him, where do you live? He's like, oh, I live like three or four hours away. Yeah. God. You know, and I was just like, I don't know. It's like you take for granted. And you're like, oh, you know, cooking in New York sucks. Can't get any good cooks anymore. And this and that. It's like, hey, man, we'll try doing it. You know, right? Look at other places because yeah. you know your situation could be a lot tougher. And these dudes are doing it with a smile on their face, and are happy to do it. That was a great conversation. I like that we kind of went all over the place there. Um, where can people find you uh, online? Instagram, you said Twitter. Oh uh, yeah, man! And my my hand, both all my, all my handles are at Dale Talby. Um, so on Instagram and Twitter, hit me up at Dale Talby, D A L E T A L T E. 
Um, my, check me out, check out my website, www.galecaldi.com. Check out what I'm doing. Uh, the restaurant, uh, Rice and Gold, Masoni, Taldi, Brooklyn, Taldi, Jersey City. Um, and if anyone's out there and needs a, a reso in any of those places, DM me on my Insta and I'll uh, take care of you guys. All right. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast and uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. Cool. cool. Thank you, man.